Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much. Half of us are here. I'm Ron Aaron. Filling in for Carol Zernio today, who is on special assignment, is Peaches Hall, and we're delighted to have Peaches with us. She runs a senior center for WellMed Medical Management here in the WellMed Charitable Foundation here in San Antonio, and she also is a former uh, manager of memory units in Florida. I am, and I'm so happy to be here. Well, we've got a very special guest who we're delighted to welcome, and that is Kyrie Carpenter, uh, who is the founder of Crone in Training and an author as well. Uh, we're going to talk with Kyrie now on our Caregiver SOS On Air And hotline. I love some of her ideas. They're different. Cool. Yeah. Kyrie, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We had talked briefly off the air about crone in training, and I was mm-hmm. curious about crone. What is crone? Yeah, so crone comes from mythology, and the word crone is the closest equivalent, is, it's the feminine equivalent to the wise old man, uh, but the archetype of crone is much more complex than that. It is an older woman who can house both the enchantress and what we would call the hag, um, is represented a lot in fairy tales, but in our American versions of these fairy tales, a lot of times her multifacetedness gets edited out. So if you go back to more of the source documents, it's this archetype that can really hold all that an older woman is and can be. And um, for me, I'm a younger woman, but I highly value aging. Um, I say I'm radically pro-aging. And so I call myself crone in training because I truly believe that for all of us to become the elders that I believe our world needs, we have to start training at every age to embody those qualities that we need in our elders. So what does your training consist of? Yeah, so my training, um, I am a certified integral coach. That's in life coaching. And then after that, I also have my master's in counseling psychology. And I did my clinical training with that master's in long-term care um, in San Francisco, working exclusively with elders living with dementia. So how do you grow? What makes you become so pro about the aging? How do you grow in this? What is it going what, what are we going to benefit out of this? What are our seniors going to see? Hmm. My, my hope is that how we'll all benefit out of this is that by talking about a pro-aging perspective, we are using what I think is one of the most important words in the language, and that's the word and. So, so often we hear only about the tragedy narrative around aging, that it's all about decline, um, that there's a lot of suffering, that it's actually something we're not supposed to do. There's a multi-billion dollar anti-aging industry. And by adding an and to the conversation, and I say and because I recognize that with aging uh, comes suffering and challenges as with life. Um, aging and synonymous are quite living, and I, I don't want to diminish the challenges that are part of the human condition. Um, what I do is I like to add an and to that conversation and also talk about what gifts can come from these challenges and what we can learn. And so I think my hope is that the people who I touch and can share this perspective with 
can have that capacity opened in themselves to hold the paradox of both the challenges and the joys and to reduce suffering um, in their own life by viewing the challenges as something to be worked through and not just something to try to be avoided. And one of the things I know you focus on uh, is the positives of aging Mm -hmm. and not seeing Mm -hmm. dementia, for example, as a huge negative. Mm -hmm. Yes. What does that Um, mean? Yes, I do. I actually see dementia as something that we can learn from. I think, you know, when we look around our world right now and, you know, for quite some time, there's, we have a lot of societal problems. We have a lot of discord. We have a lot of, um, we focus a lot on cognition. You know, from a very young age, we give standardized tests to children. We categorize ourselves based on cognition, the way that we think in that certain type of a way. And I think that dementia can teach us how to value the whole person, not just how well they can do on a standardized test. Um, there's a really great quote from a dementia researcher who lived in the UK, Tom Kitwood, that talks about the reason that we measure cognition so much is because it's really easy to measure, but that doesn't mean that it's more valuable than our intuition and the way that we know things in the body than the ways that our emotional intelligence can connect and learn and grow. and. And that's actually, you mentioned I'm a book author, and my book is called Healing Dementia, and it sort of speaks to this. It um, is a visual representation of our consciousness over time and how when we're kids, we're much more permeable, and we allow ourselves to know things from all different ways of knowing, you know, both those emotional intelligences as well as cognition. And then as we get older, we cognition serves us. Thinking well serves us. It's really great for being an achievement-oriented adult in our world. Um, But then there's a turning point where it doesn't serve us anymore, and it's time to integrate all of those other ways of knowing again. And I think that dementia can be a leader that points to that. My personal experience with people living with dementia is that they helped me to learn how to be versus how to do. You know, we're human beings and how to really connect with someone and learn to know each other on a more emotional level. I was really struck at the kinds of relationships that can be made when you can't remember the details of your past interactions and you only have that emotion to rely on. Um, so there's a lot in there, but that's the basic overview of how I see dementia pointing us in a direction of learning and how, along with the challenges that come with it, it can offer us something to learn and grow with. Now, I want to talk in a minute about uh, a performing tour Changing mm-hmm. Aging, Dr. Bill Thomas's mm-hmm. nationwide tour. Before we do that, let me remind folks who have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Peaches Hall. We're talking with Korea Carpenter. And as I read in your bio, you've been involved in a nationwide tour. I am not familiar with Dr. Bill Thomas or with Changing Aging, but I'm curious, what is it? Sure. Um, so I'll start with Dr. Bill Thomas. Uh, Dr. Bill Thomas, uh, in the early 90s, founded the Eden Alternative, which is an international um, organization that helps um, long-term care communities as well as home health care communities to adopt a more humanistic approach to aging. I really um, encourage people to check them out. They have over 300 communities worldwide, and they are um, have really been fierce advocates you know, for my entire lifetime, uh, for changing the culture around aging and particularly the way that the most vulnerable and most frail um, are treated. Uh, The thing that they're most famous for 
is getting plants and animals and things in the nursing homes, but it goes a lot more, a lot deeper than that, really addressing boredom and isolation um, with our elders and really bringing back this, um, really bringing us back to valuing you know, some of the most important members of our communities. Um, and after Dr. Thomas did that, he's just continued to be really innovative in this field. He also started something called the greenhouse model, which is more of a family structured home um, for our elders to live in, where elders and care partners live together. They eat at a large wooden table together um, and really live life the way that, you know, we used to before all the institutions were created to house our elders. Um, and then now, um, and so then Dr. Thomas has just continued to innovate in the space. And one of the other innovations was creating Changing Aging, which is a blog platform and theater tour all around exactly what it sounds like, changing our cultural perceptions of aging. Um, and so I think, I don't remember the exact number at the moment, I think they've done over 120 stops. I'm not sure of the exact number yet. Um, and it's pretty crazy. It's a rock and roll bus with, 10 to 12 of us on it. Um, for several years, AARP was a national sponsor, and we did 30 cities a year. So it would be a week on the road and then about four weeks off and a week back on the road doing five cities at a time. And we do two shows. I'm in the afternoon show, which is called Disrupt Dementia. And then there's an evening show, which um, Dr. Thomas is in, called Life's Most Dangerous Game. And they are both what we call nonfiction theater. So everything you'd think about seeing in a theater performance, except all the stories are true and we're talking about nonfiction things, it's something that's quite hard to explain. You sort of have to experience it. Uh, but I feel like it's most similar to watching a documentary play out. Now, what did you do in the show? Were you one of the characters? Mm -hmm. Yep, so I'm one of the cast members of Disrupt Dementia. And um, we are still touring. We have some tour stops coming up in the fall in um, the Chicago area and then in the New Jersey, Philadelphia area. Um, and so in Disrupt Dementia, I share some of my own personal journey with dementia. And then I also, myself, made a casting where we read quotes, uh, firsthand accounts from people living with dementia. And then there are also two musicians who play with us and share some of their stories. And we created this show in partnership with people living with dementia and their care partners um, in Seattle. And so a lot of their stories and video of them are woven into, and it's all about challenging, again, this tragedy-only narrative and showing how it's possible to live well with dementia. What was your personal involvement with dementia? So my personal involvement is only professionally. Um, I'm pretty rare in that respect. Most of the people in this industry have a you know, a personal connection from a family member. Um, but the first time I really met someone living with dementia was when I did that clinical training um, for my counseling psych degree. So I was providing therapy. And that's my personal connection with it as I got to meet my clients and I did not know what to expect or how one was expected to provide therapy for someone living with dementia. And um, I learned along the way and just really became passionate about the human rights issue that I really see with how people living with dementia are treated. So do you get a chance culture. to talk with the audience when you finish your, the production? Do you get to go out and talk to the audience, see what they feel about it and how it's moved them? Yes, yes. We always go out to the lobby afterwards and hang out and chat, and there's always lots of hugs, and people want to share you know, their story, and I, I love hearing 
um, it's amazing how much story can connect to people and it's really, yeah, it's beautiful. That's some of my, my favorite time is going out to the lobby afterwards and getting to really hear, because so much of what we talk about the universal experience for people who are living with dementia and their loved ones, and that's not talked about that much. And so it's, for a lot of people, it's the first time that they're getting to share these stories of growth and of joy and, you know, what they've learned. How do they hear about this? How do they know that you're coming to town? How do they find out about um, your production? Yeah. So we always partner with local organizations um, who help. That's how we pick, like, what cities we go to is usually there's, you know, someone in that city who's usually heard of Dr. Thomas and is a fan or a friend, and then they pull together the local, you know, area agency on aging, AARP, local chapters, um, and whatever other organizations are there in that community. Um, sometimes different long-term care communities will sponsor us, different things like that. So there's sort of a built-in, it's really um, grassroots in now, that ho- way. Ho- well, hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. And one other thing I, I want to pick up on is what you did in 2015. We'll talk about that next on Caregiver SOS On Air. wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio. Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to well, I'm at radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, we are so pleased you were with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host today, Peaches Hall, filling in for Carol Zerniel. want to remind you that all of our shows are available on podcast. All you have to do is Google Caregiver SOS On Air, and those podcasts will pop up, or you can always hear us on the radio, like the real radio, at 6 p.m. on Sundays. 9.30 a.m. The Answer is where you find us. We're talking with Curie Cortland uh, Carpenter, uh, who is uh, founder of Crone in Training, and we were talking about uh, ways in which uh, she was involved with as a professional dealing with questions of not only Alzheimer's but other forms of dementia. And I wanted you to finish the thought that you were dealing with and then tell me about 2015. Hmm. Yeah, no, we can, we can jump right into 2015. So in 2015, um, I decided uh, with my partner that we wanted to, I'd been living in San Francisco at the time, and I'm actually back here again now, so a bit of a hero's journey there. Um, But we decided we wanted to explore the country and try to find a place where we could plant down and um, start a wellness center. And so we thought the best way to look and do that, and I also really wanted to explore I knew what aging looked like here, what the demographics looked like, and I really wanted to see what it was like everywhere else. So we bought a cargo van 
and we built it out very simply because neither of us are very talented with woodworking. Um, we put a bed in it and a little table and a little closet, and we drove it around, and we went to every single state. We, we left it at the airport to go to Hawaii, uh, but we did take it to Alaska, got a couple of bonus Canadian provinces on the way, and uh, it was a really transformative year for sure, and it gave me a really deep respect for our country and for the amazing amount of different people and ways of life and ways of being that our country have, and yet how we are all still connected so as one. did you go to assisted livings or memory care units or nursing homes? Um, I went to all sorts of different places. So mm-hmm. we were just sort of traveling around, and yeah, whenever possible, I would connect um, with people and go into different um, levels of care. And a lot of it, too, was about just being in communities. What did it look like? Did you see people of different ages hanging out at cafes? Did you see people of different ages? Um, we had YMCA memberships, and so we would shower there a lot. And that was actually a really great place to see a lot of intergenerational exchange. Uh, was at the YMCA. I'll say they're doing a real good job on intergenerational exchange. There was always a real wide variety of ages and abilities there. Um, but mostly it was about that, like seeing in the community. Yeah, were people separated by age? Were they living um, all together? And I really got inspired about that. I, the summer before, I'd been in Copenhagen for the International Alzheimer's Conference, and I was that was the first time I'd been a place where when you walked into cafes, there really was a lot of age diversity mm-hmm. um, in the day-to-day, and that wasn't something that I'd been used to seeing here. So do you see a big difference between uh, the, the states and going overseas um, on how people are accepted uh, by age? Yeah, and I feel like what I really saw here is as, as different as so many of our um, states are, that one thing they really share is that we do definitely segregate based on age. Um, you know, there's definitely certain, if you go into, you know, there's definitely certain places where you'll see an age demographic of people. Um, I did notice we ended up planting in Milwaukee for about a year and a half and starting our wellness center there, and I did notice that in the Midwest, there seemed to be a lot of really cool stuff happening um, around age inclusion and really trying to make things better for at the end of life and do a lot of intergenerational exchange and stuff. But I was shocked that pretty much across the country, I wouldn't say there was anywhere that it really wasn't like that. Um, outside of organizations that do a good job, like I said, like the YMCA, we, we definitely tend to stay in our age cohort. Do you think, and because you are younger, do you think your peers mm-hmm. are coming along and that this is making a change for younger people to value older? Yeah, I, I mean, I hope so. At least my, my direct uh, group of friends is for sure. I love it when they'll, you know, notice someone saying something that's, you know, internally, um, like internalized ageism. Mm-hmm. I love hearing my friends call something out of like, no, you can't, you know, don't use old disparagingly, mm-hmm. you know, or don't use young as a pejorative. Um, that's one of, I feel like, one of the easiest ways to notice ageism is usually when people use the word young or old, it's not what they actually mean. They mean something else. Um, so it's always fun to ask them, what do you mean young? What do you mean old? And you can sort of get to the root of what they mean. But I do think that it's really changing. I think that there's a lot of um, exciting stuff happening with, you know, as awareness about diversity in general is on the rise and inclusion um, around diversity on all different facets. Age is one of the most intersectional diversity facets because we all will experience being both in um, you know, the more powerful demographic and the least powerful demographic, if 
because we've all been younger. Um, and then hopefully we'll all get to be older. Yeah, so I, I think I, age is a really great thing to rally around. And I do see change. Good. I, I feel uh, I'm mm-hmm. in the in the strongest demographic, but I am older. I feel that mm-hmm. and just because I, I feel that I've had the experience. But not everybody mm-hmm. feels that. Where does yours come from that you feel close to? It seems like you're okay being around people who are older. Did, what, was there somebody mm-hmm. powerful in your life that gave that to you? Um, honestly, it goes back to that training that I had when I was working in long-term care. I think like so many people you know, of my generation, I had a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. about people that were older than me, you know, some negative about them, and then them also thinking, you know, I had a lot of ideas in my own mind about, like, oh, they won't take me seriously because I'm younger. Mm. You know, I had a lot of internalized ageism, or, like, oh, what could I offer someone who's older? Um, you know, and then I also had, you know, we all know the stereotypes, those ideas, and then when I actually started to make relationships with people mm-hmm. of different ages, then all of a sudden you realize that those stereotypes aren't true right. um i guess it was interesting your question's making me think too because not um they're not that much older than me but i do have some really close i've had some intergenerational friendships too mm-hmm. that have really helped too and more of those have been fostered since i've began this work but even before i began this work i had some really close friends that are about 30 years older than me mm-hmm. and so my, i'm sure that that's helped blow my myth a little bit you probably. know or at least start to my respect for the elderly comes from my grandmother who raised me. And so I, she was a, she can do anything and did anything um, and instilled that into me knowing that I could be that way too. Mm, yeah. See, and those are the kind of exchanges that we need. That's awesome. Now, as you exactly. traveled the country, you mentioned you went to all 50 states. Uh, are there yes. some favorites? Are there states that uh, you thought the, uh, the older folks were uh, thriving and successful and, and being respected? Hmm, interesting, yeah. Yeah, favorite on that realm. Um, trying to think. You know, what's interesting, what comes up for me, as far as, like, a whole state being thriving, I'm not sure. There's certain organizations in certain places where there definitely was a lot of thriving. Um, but what was interesting is how many states, too, and, in, in, you know, done the traveling in the van, but then also with the tours, there's a lot of states that um, the demographics just sort of force them to be thinking about this a bit more. Um, I was born in Florida, for example, and so obviously the demographics there, especially in the winter time, um, make this something that we have to start thinking about sooner rather than later. And so I think there's a lot of awareness there, which sort of helps. It's like the first step, right, is awareness. And then similarly with um, I know both Maine and New Hampshire have um, demographically quite large populations of people over 65. And so I see a lot of innovation happening in those places just because that first step of having awareness that, you know, we now have these, that many of us are going to have much longer lives than people did before, um, you know, as a whole cohort. You were saying and, that... Yeah. Um, you had at one point started a assisted living, is that correct? A wellness center. Oh, a wellness yes. center. And so tell me, oh, yeah, wellness center. if yeah. you were to open a dementia center, what would it look like? Mm. It, like you mean like a memory care community? Yes, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So it, that's a fun question. It would not, it would look like a place, I would want to have people living there with both um, cognitive change and without, because I think that's really important. And it would look like a place 
where everyone, we would use universal design inspired by people living with dementia. So we would look at the needs of someone living with dementia, but then make a place that would actually be nicer for anyone, no matter what their cognitive abilities are to live. Mm -hmm. So it would be a place where there probably wouldn't be a lot of cars. It would be really easy to get around, you know, something where it was a lot of walkability, but also accessible if you use a mobility device, such as a wheelchair or walker. Um, so we think about a lot of things like that. It would also be a place where there were always things to do, but that didn't have to happen at a certain time. So a lot of access to yummy foods and Anytime different dining. activities and ways to engage, but whenever you want to engage in that and for however long you want to engage in that. And, do you, um, and I would want to pull together a group of people living with dementia to really ask them yeah. what would make this best and really using them as inspiration for, again, I'm a really big believer in universal design, that if we design something that works well for people of different abilities, it's actually going to be more accessible and better for everyone. Okay. In terms of any time eating peaches, uh, having worked in the industry, mm -hmm. having run memory units. Mm -hmm. uh, is that practical? Can that work? It works for people without the dementia. So if you put a senior group together, because um, uh, my generation wants to eat when they want to eat. <laughs> it's, it's just that mm -hmm. generation. Um, for people with dementia, um, they usually will eat when they can smell it. And, and you know, it, sometimes they don't have the appetite. So it takes a mm -hmm. group to sit down with them because sometimes they need to be fed. You know, But for people who are... Um, seniors and are in a position that can live in an independent community that works great we're going to come right back to this in a moment i'm ron aaron along with peaches hall talking with korea carpenter about dementia and creating uh, an environment i want to find out about the wellness center uh, that she and her partner put together you hear us at 9 30 a.m the answer We're talking with Curie Carpenter on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our very special co-host, Peaches Hall, who is filling in today for Carol Zernio, who is on special assignment. <clears throat> Curie, tell me about the wellness center that you founded. Sure, yes. I founded a wellness center in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It is there and running and amazing. It's, it's called Prosper. Um, and the original vision was a, was a dream that my partner had. Um, he worked in corporate America and then stopped and did a yoga teacher training and he wanted to make a place where he could, um, the original vision was to teach yoga and then maybe have a cafe and live above it and live in community and then it, it evolved as dreams do. And But we found this amazing Victorian um, on the National Historic Register right in the heart of Milwaukee and it was really confusingly zoned and needed a little bit of help, and so we bought it and got all of that figured out. And what we ended up doing actually was finding really cool partners in the community. And there's a lot of different rooms because it's an old Victorian mansion. And so now they're all housed with all sorts of different wellness practitioners. And it's, um, it's a really cool space for these people in the community who wouldn't have necessarily been able to find each other, have a place, but now they're all under one roof. And it's just a really great way, too, to take this historic property um, in Milwaukee and have it be open to the public. Um, it's really beautiful on the inside, and now anyone can come in and see it. And there's um, yoga there. There's a holistic opiate recovery center. There's a couple different therapists, acupuncture, Reiki, dance. There's a library. Um, and it's actually right across the street from one of the biggest CCRCs in Milwaukee, too. So we get our fair share of elders. 
Oh, okay, so this one is not, this wellness center is not for seniors? Not specifically. It's, no, it's not specifically, um, but pretty much everything I do is infused and inspired by, again, that, like, radically pro-aging. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's open to all ages. That's great. What is your, what are your demographics there? How many young, how many older? You know, it's all, it's so different because there's probably 10 different businesses that mm-hmm. um, run themselves out of there. So it'd be hard to have to ask all of them. Mm-hmm. But we get a pretty good mix. Like I said, we're, um, the neighborhood that it's in in Milwaukee is on the Lower East Side, which is a really cool, we picked it because it's got a really good demographic mix. Mm-hmm. Um, the university is pretty close by, right on the lake. There's quite a few different um, independent living, senior living, you know, all across the gamut. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of young professionals in the area, too, because it's pretty close to downtown. So it's kind of right at this awesome generational mix. No, oh, that's great. Is, is there a plan to expand uh, Prosper to other states? No, I think Prosper is its own little, um, I think that was a really, it was a fun project for us. And it sort of is its thing. Um, and now I've really been focusing it's running and love it. And then, yeah, I've been focusing a lot more on the, I started the tour as I was also starting um, while I was still at Prosper. And so I've been doing a lot more stuff around advocacy and awareness raising in this space. Yeah, so maybe, you, maybe if that slows down. <laughs> as you think about uh, society today, our country mm-hmm. is clearly aging. Uh, more mm-hmm. people over 65 than under 18 what does mm-hmm. that say to you in terms of how we're going to become perhaps better and better uh, at dealing with aging? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that those demographic shifts are really helpful um, because they do force us to see aging as a thing that happens. They sort of blow the anti-aging myth that we can, you know, stop aging if we eat well and exercise and use the right face cream. Um, none of that actually works. Uh Aging is something that happens every single day of our, you know, our life. And I'm really grateful for the demographic shift because I think it is really making this something that people will listen to and think about. And I hope that we can draw on the demographic shift as a way to, again, start to integrate across generations. Like the story teachers shared about her grandmother fostering more interactions like that, um, fostering more possibility for younger people and older people to interact and learn from each other and really figure out solutions for our society that works for all ages. Now, one of the things that uh, we picked up a quote from you, I began to notice those who rejected the process of aging were suffering more than those who embraced Mm -hmm. it. So chasing Mm -hmm. the plastic surgeon, Mm -hmm. chasing the creams, chasing hair plugs wasn't working for them. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so this gets back into, yes, yeah, so my training as like a coach and a therapist, um, gets back into, we all have an inner critic. I'm sure you guys, um, you know, know what I'm talking about. We all have that voice in our head that tells us how we should be, what we should do. And, and it's usually a voice that at some point in our life really served us and helped us to, you know, work hard or do something correctly. But then, by the time we get to adulthood, it doesn't really serve us anymore, and it can be these narratives that actually increase suffering and can cause, you know, anxiety and depression um, for us. And so, yeah, I noticed that with, you know, I was saying earlier, aging is inevitable. You know, the opposite, the only thing that's truly anti-aging is death. That's when we stop aging. 
And so when you have something like this that's inevitable and we get sold products and we get sold a myth that we're supposed to be able to stop it, that we're supposed to be able to stay in the same you know, exact physical form and appearance um, as we were at a certain age, whatever we deemed perfect, and then we can't, that makes us feel like we're failing. And we're not failing. We're living. And that was the suffering that, I can, that I've seen alleviated by taking on a pro-aging perspective. And I know this is a lot, too, in working with um, elders living with dementia. There were just some who, for whatever reason in their life, whatever practices they had, had a bit of a lightheartedness with their own forgetfulness and rolled with it, you know, a bit, so to speak. And I noticed how much more joy they were able to have in their day-to-day and actually how much more connection and stuff, too, because they could, instead of getting hung up on what they were forgetting, um, they would just laugh with it and roll with it, and usually someone else could help out, and there would be that community fostered. So that's sort of where I first noticed it, and then I looked around at how we beat ourselves up, you know, for wrinkles. I'm dealing with my friends now. I am on the younger side, and a lot of my friends are just now starting to cover gray hair, and it's been a big conversation for us, too. You know, how come gray hair is considered any less beautiful than brown or blonde or red. Um, that's totally a choice. And so by embracing those changes and by saying, nope, gray hair is just as beautiful, and it's easier said than done. But by doing the work to start to embrace those things, then you're not getting um, the, in the Buddhist tradition what they call the second arrow. You know, the thing's happening, and then you're beating yourself up for the thing happening. You know, it's interesting. My... Uh... Mm-hmm. My wife and I have a conversation from time to time about how I like to see a little bit of gray hair, uh, and she mm-hmm. absolutely doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't yeah. want it. Yep. Now I need. I mean, to- it's a lot. It's harder for women. A lot of women report feeling invisible and they let their hair go gray, um, which is again because of our cultural norms around it. So I'm a big proponent of trying to challenge those cultural norms and name that gray hair is beautiful. And I think the current trend um, amongst youngers to dye their hair silver is just pretty ironic. Um, But hopefully a movement in the right direction that it can be beautiful is beautiful. So what's the future for you? What's the next step? What are you going to do? I am hoping to just continue to be able to connect with people about this and really help uh, affecting change, um, you know, both on a person to person level and then, I believe that culture change starts with people change. So I'm going to keep, for right now, the plan is to keep doing what I'm doing, speaking, coaching, and writing, um, connecting with people however I can, talking about these ideas, learning more myself, um, and just helping us move forward to a world that can embrace aging and can foster relationships across generations. You like being on the road. I do. I do like being on the road. <laughs> that, that's more science. That's more. You're you're still you're gathering your facts. Now, are your parents still yeah. living? Are your parents yes, alive? Yes. So, what do they, they think? Are. What do they think of their little daughter? <laughs> I don't know that they know what to make of me all the time, um, but they're proud. Yeah, they're both living. They both live in Florida, um, and I think yeah, I think that they they like to read and you know, read what I write and. They follow me, and, um, you know, I don't know. You'd have to ask them, but I hope that they would say that they're proud of me, and I know they think the work I do is interesting, even if they don't quite understand all of it all the time, you know. And you um, have grandparents? Very supportive. You have grandparents? I do. 
Yeah, I grew up with six grandparents and um, four are living. Wow, unfortunate. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Um, I'm very close um, with them and take a lot of inspiration from them, too. Um, On my dad's side, I'm a third-generation only child, so there's... Um, wow! Just us there. And now to have uh, <laughs> to have six grandparents, there had to be a divorce along the way. Yes, there there was. Um, my my dad didn't meet his father until um, he was an adult, but I've been able to have a relationship with him huh. my entire life, and um, I really yeah I draw a lot of inspiration from him. He's a physician in Philadelphia. Um, he's in his late 80s and a practicing physician. Oh. Um, so one of those stories that, yeah. <laughs> well, so. He's amazing. He rides his bike to the train every day. and Now I am really city. impressed. That's awesome. Good See, you buried the lead. He's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I would good. start with that story about yeah. the perception of aging at uh, late 80s, mm-hmm. riding a bike to the train and still practicing medicine. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. great. Well, that, that'll yeah. start you. So, so where are you going now? You're headed to, on the road with your production, and you have how much how much longer? I mean, it's so it's like the world's never-ending tour. They've oh, been well, doing good. it since 2014. There's no so yeah. So we're no longer we have been doing for the past couple of years 30 cities a year, but now it's just one-offs when a community wants the show to come. Mm-hmm. Then we come. So we're going to Oak Park, Illinois, and then we're going to be going to um, New Jersey. As well, and then I've got a couple. You know, I do some speaking too. I'll be doing some speaking in the Northeast in the fall, and um, I've also been working on a project with Dr. Bill Thomas at the University of Southern Indiana in Evansville that we call Magic Multi Ability Multi Generational Inclusive Communities. So I've been going back and forth to Indiana a lot. And he's on the road about once a month. Are his communities? Uh, do they have like the town centers and everything? It's, so we're just talking about community building in general, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. like physically. Um, so right now we're working with um, University of Southern Indiana to build. Dr. Thomas's latest um, innovation is a modular housing model. So mm-hmm. it's they can be made into tiny homes, but also large homes too. Um, they're called Minkas, mm-hmm. can learn more about that, but they're really easy to assemble, super eco-friendly housing that can follow ADU laws, they can be put in backyards, or they can be clustered mm-hmm. to create neighborhoods and communities. So we're building a model house at University of Southern Indiana, and then also doing a lot of work um, and research there just about what does it take to actually foster intergenerational multi-ability communities. Hmm. And tell us about your book. Yeah, so my book, Healing Dementia, is um, a picture book designed for adults. So it's all watercolors, and I did, it's a representation of consciousness, and I did watercolors all on the same page, same way we have one brain throughout our life, and then represented the different life phases and how we use different kinds of knowing throughout our life. Um, and you and did the gotten, artwork? I did the artwork and the words, and it's really simple words, and it's really designed, I can read it aloud in three minutes, and so it's very much designed to be a coffee table kind of book where you can pick it up, read it, think about it. Um, designed to be accessible for people living with dementia to to talk about the artwork or just enjoy looking at it depending on where they are in their journey. Um, Abstract enough so you can apply your own ideas to it. Where can people find your book? They can find it on Amazon and on changingaging.org. So if you just look up Healing Dementia in my name, you can find it on Amazon. It's also on my website and on Changing Aging. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, we are flat out of time. 
but it's been a great conversation. Yes, thanks, yeah, Kyrie. Thank you so much for having me. Kyrie Carpenter, and we're delighted to have this chance to talk with her right here on 930 AM, The Answer, on Caregiver SOS On Air. Up next, Take 10. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Well, thank you for joining us. Take 10 follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air shows. Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert on caregiving and addictions, joins us. And Peaches Hall is filling in for Carol Zerniel today on Caregiver SOS on-air and Take 10. And I'm Ron Aaron. So, Dr. Jamie, uh, you, you hear from a lot of folks who are caregivers who are just plain burnt out. What does that mean? Just plain burned out. Caregiving is a rewarding experience, Ron. There's a, a saintly path to it, as Mother Teresa was kind of the uh, the total symbol of that. But if we recall Mother Teresa's you know last book that she wrote, she got very very honest about how stressed she really was in feeding the poor in India and how she questioned her life and she questioned her faith. So I mean, caregiving can be totally rewarding, but let's not forget how stressful and how deeply stressful it is and the type of burnout. It creates. So that's the first thing that people always come up to me and says, how do I, I do it? Are there actual tips for taking care of yourself? And I say, of course, but first, you have to put yourself first before your loved one. Yeah, I see That's some... a difficult task, by the way. That's, a, that's how we named my book, Take Your Oxygen First. Remember, taking your oxygen first was about not giving it to your loved one first, but taking it uh, first, because both of you will perish if that plane crashes if you don't. Exactly. So if you're the main caregiver and you're going downhill, you, you both are in bad shape. You've got to take care Absolutely. of yourself. Absolutely. And when you think and about Go ahead, Jimmy. No, no. I mean, you can always see the, the, the triggers of it. When you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling tired constantly, you're getting... Uh, too much sleep or not enough sleep. You're becoming angry at all different things around you. You have frequent headaches, body pain. Crying. Many times you're abusing alcohol or drugs. So this stress over a long time simply harms your health. And when you reach that point of burnout, do you know you're there? I believe you do know you're there especially if you've done what you needed to do in terms of connecting to support groups, going to powerful programs that Peaches can talk about, like Caregiver SOS, being around like-minded people who have traveled that journey, 
there is great insight, which is connecting motivation to behavior. And at some point in time, we go from the bag over our head to finally self-identifying and to accept help. I always say make a list of the people who can help you, the people who are willing to. Um, your, sometimes your neighbor is willing to come over while you go to the market. Or you, like you say, some of your faith-based help. If people at the church are willing to do that, sometimes they'll even pick up the husband or the wife and take them out to a meal, and it gives that person a time to take a hot bath and just maybe clean the front room up or get dinner started so they can sit down for a few minutes. But Put a list together of the people who are willing to help you and then talk to your doctor because financially you may be in that part where he can get a caregiver for you and it's covered. And if not, then they can. you can talk to your doctor and ask for caregiver options about who's out there. And there are many, many caregiver programs, but you want to investigate them. You want to look into them. You want to make sure that you're just not hiring somebody that somebody recommended to you. There's a lot of pitfalls on that. You know, Ron, perfectionism is the cancer of the soul, just like isolation is. And it's normal to, to become the superman or superwoman as a caregiver. So you really have to focus on what you're able to provide. Be very, very realistic in those goals. And, and when you do that, that's when, again, you seek out a support group. You seek out a therapist. You seek out respite. You actually become the quarterback, if you will, of your loved one's care but really being mindful of putting your care first. Remembering the caregiving or anybody has three legs to that stool, the medical, the psychological, and the social. And do not forget that all three are important or that stool will fall down when you sit on it. Well, very often when you mention isolation, the caregiver uh, doesn't think anyone else can do it as well as they do, uh, doesn't want to leave the home, doesn't want uh, to go out for mommy's day out, so to speak. Uh, because they think something untoward will happen to the care recipient, no matter how burned out they may feel. How does that caregiver get over that feeling, that belief that no one can do it as well as I can do it? That martyrdom comes entirely with the territory, and I so agree that a couple of things have to happen. One, unfortunately, your knees have to hit the ground. The strategies that you have around you has, has created this, terrible sort of overwhelming lifestyle where at some point in time you look around and see your life is falling apart. Uh, that unfortunately is like that. The other way to do this is a family, a loving family, to come around you to see that you're burned out, that you're falling apart, you're no help to yourself or to your loved one, and do an intervention to be able to get you to accept the help, to get into therapy, to get into a support group, to seek social support. This comes from a loving family sort of intervention. So uh, that can often be facilitated by a great social worker or geriatric care manager. Let's talk more about that in a moment, but I want to remind someone who may have just joined us. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Peaches Hall filling in for Carol Zerniel today. And we're talking about caregiver burnout, uh, what the symptoms are, what uh concern there may be and how to deal with it. And Dr. Jamie, you, you were talking about getting that loving family or uh, a group to intervene. How do you orchestrate that? Well, you never do it yourself. I think Peaches will tell you that the messenger always gets killed. These one-to-one -one interventions don't work because we're always dealing with ghosts and goblins. So you become an assistant, if you will, to an excellent geriatric care manager or therapist. You put down the family who may be long-distance caregivers or other people invested in the process. 
you talk to the, the, the facilitator about a lot of the dynamics, and you get the whole family to agree to set up a time, you step away and allow this energy to be facilitated by a third party, knowing full well that if you facilitate it, you're done, you're toast, it's over. And also, um, one of the parts of this disease, sometimes the person who has the dementia is not sleeping well at night. If they're not sleeping well at night, the caregiver's certainly not going to. So I always say, talk to your doctor. Sometimes they don't even share with the doctor about this. And I've seen it where all of a sudden the doctor says, why didn't you say something? They put them on medication, they're sleeping through the evening, and so is the caregiver. You know, Ron, we, we talk about meditation as well and the mindfulness, if you can, of a, of a caregiver getting engaged in something that's cost-effective, something that they can actually do on a daily basis, a relaxation practice, if you will. They can also find groups that are actually doing this rather than do it themselves. But they also have to eat well. They can't skimp. Just like uh, Peaches said, sleep is critical. It's, it's the replenishment of the soul. And so you have to, as a caregiver, visit your primary uh, physician as much as you want your caree to, find, to visit them. Both of you have to be on, on solid footing. A person who has a disease does not want their caregiver to be on one leg blowing in the wind. It's bad enough and stressful enough to have a chronic or terminal illness. It's interesting you mentioned mindfulness. Uh, I'm reading, uh, I read a ton of fiction, and there's one little character in the book who's uh, uh, a survivor of sexual assault uh, who tries mindfulness and uh, night after night and finally says to herself, I stink at this. It simply won't work. And she gets up, gets out of bed, and just starts working. It just starts working. In what way did it work? Gets first? on her computer. That's it. Yeah. So, so exactly that. So, and a lot of people will substitute. Again, this is where the addictive qualities come in. Uh, that people go through an addiction. The definition of an addiction is to do any behavior despite adverse consequences. Caregivers are real prone to that, whether it's the medication of their loved ones in a, in a medicine cabinet or whether it's what you're talking about, Ron, burying ourselves in some work addiction. That is why it's critical to get into the moment, not have your foot in tomorrow, not have your foot in yesterday, and take care of yourself now. That's great advice. you got time for one last thought as we head to the end of Take 10 today. Well, Peaches, I may defer to you, but I can say that the acceptance of health, the ability to self-identify as a caregiver, and focus on what you can do for yourself medically, psychologically, and socially is the most critical element of taking care of a loved one. Until a caregiver comes to that realization, I think they're going to be have that tremendous martyrdom, if you will, and like last week's session, be extraordinarily angry with somebody outside or with themselves inside. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yes, see you. <laughs> You took it away from Peaches. We are just so simpatico. We're going to stop right here. <laughs> Dr. Jamie Heisman, thank you so much. If folks want to get a hold of you, what do they do? They can contact me at DRJ, which is Dr. J. I'm not the basketball player, but DRJ <laughs> at drjamie.com, D-R-J-A-M-I-E.com. And I'd look forward to it, and I'll answer any email they'll send. Thank you. Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron for Peaches Hall. Thanks for listening on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. 
and join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.